Today on The Art Dealer Show, you will hear owner of Chase Art, Bob Chase, say, I just want to go to bed knowing that somebody somewhere in the world is presenting a piece of art of ours. Hello and welcome to The Art Dealer Show, a podcast about the people who sell art and for the people who sell art. My name is Danny Stern, and today on the show, we have something special, not just for you folks, but for me in particular. I'm uh, a number of interviews in, and uh, I, I have interviewed many art dealers who have done the jobs that I've done in the past, and gallery owners and gallery directors, and a lot of people who I share a lot with in my experience. But today, today is the very first time that I'm going to get to interview somebody who is an absolute counterpart to what I do for a living. And that's not a long list of people. That's You can pretty much count them on one hand, depending on how you want to filter it down. I have Bob Chase. And Bob Chase, if you're not familiar with him, is the owner of Chase Art. And if you're not familiar with Chase Art, you definitely, no matter what, are familiar with the artists they represent. Eric Fischel is a relatively new one and happens to be one of my favorite painters as well as, and probably even a little bit more likely, Dr. Seuss. They've been handling the Dr. Seuss program since the late 1990s, and what they've done with it is absolutely spectacular. But I'm not going to go too far down the line, because I, I want to, well, you know, it's another one of those moments we got to roll into the old art dealer bar, because I got some stuff going on, and I want to share them with you. So please, uh, join me. Join me at my uh, corner booth in the back. About two weeks ago, I got a phone call from an old friend. Actually, it started as a bunch of messages, one after another. They were machine gunning at me. And and he's an old friend in the business. The reason why he was first shooting off all of those texts, he was excited because he was listening to the podcast for the very first time. And he uh, he loved it. He, he was elated. Uh, quite frankly, based upon the feedback I'm getting, I, I think I found my number one fan out there. But eventually, it evolved into a phone call. And in the phone call, after we discussed many things, and he talked about the things he liked on the show and things he wanted to hear more of. And, and, uh, and by the way, I, I'm, I'm not trying to throw some sideways compliment to my own podcast inside of my own podcast here, but he, he genuinely had some great things to say. He asked, um, he asked me a question. He said, Danny, you got the podcast. Uh, you're talking to everybody. So I need to ask you. Uh, and I said, yeah, go ahead. I- I'm going to call him Mark because a lot of you may know him. He owns a pretty good-sized gallery, and he's done some lot of good work. I-, I bet there's a good percentage of you out there who are familiar with who he is. He said, Danny, what should I do next? That's a, that's a heavy question. I qualified that. I said, well, what do you mean, what should you do next? You mean, what artists should you take on? Uh, you know, what kind of people should you have working in your gallery? Should you advertise? What exactly is it you're asking here? And he said, no, 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 no. I mean, straight out, what should I do next? And I understood. I understood that in the midst of what has been a trying year, and you have to admit, it has been a trying year. And, you know, in general, I try to make these podcasts kind of evergreen. I don't like referring to the specific time because I think there's a lot of universal truths that we get to here. And it's not important that we talk about the moment. But in this particular case, I'm going to talk about the moment. It's 2016, and it's a week before the election. He's talking about what you have to admit if you're in the industry was not a particularly good year for most of us. There's a reason why he was asking, what should I do next? And it's not just this year. It's been building for a very long time. It's just this is a particularly bad year. Once again, a lot of people in the business are asking big questions because they're not sure what has happened around them. They feel change. And the smart ones, the smart ones like Mark, fake name. They're not trying to just double down on what they've done before. They're open to the idea that whatever they do needs to be done differently. So Mark asked, what should I do next? 
And, you know, I felt the pressure on me. I mean, look, I got the audacity to talk into this microphone on a regular basis and and, and, and prognosticate and, you know, theorize and uh, give some thoughts to uh, what it is we're doing out there. And, and uh, I felt like I needed to say something. I said, well, you know, let's, let's look at what's happening in the marketplace. And, and maybe we should be trying, or maybe you should be trying, rather, um, a couple different kind of artists. Maybe styles have changed a little bit. I mean, God knows we're in the fashion business. Even if it's in slow motion, it's genuinely the fashion business, Mark. And he said, Danny, stop. You're not answering my question. What should I do next? And then I had to stop myself. I was just about to go into another round of basically bullshit. Just because I felt it was somehow my responsibility because I had committed myself to this. Because I opened my big mouth on a regular basis here on the show. But that wasn't the reason why I started the show. And that's why I had to stop myself. I said, you know, I got to be quite frank. You misunderstood. I'm not doing this because I know everything. I'm doing this because, quite frankly, I know a lot less than I know. What I do know is, you're right. Things are changing. Things are always changing. Things have always changed. And quite frankly, we need to be adjusting to whatever it is. And my hope is that over time, as we talk to a lot of other art-selling professionals, not just art dealers and gallery owners, but all the kinds of people who are involved in our business in one way or the other, and we've had a, a unique variety of them so far, and we got a much more incredible variety of them coming forward in the future, that bit by bit, conversation by conversation, there will be insights, small epiphanies and big ones, that collectively maybe will give some shape to whatever is going on now. Not just the industry as a whole, but the moment too will start to take some form. And you've heard me talk about this before. I know it's not entirely a new statement for some of you that's listening to all the episodes, but I felt compelled to re-emphasize uh, my reason for being here and, and why I want to do this podcast. And it's not just me, and it's not just the podcast that's going to find, hopefully, some of those answers, big and small, over time in these conversations. It's going to be you. It's going to be you specifically listening to this podcast. And that's why, that's why every week I keep on saying I need to hear from you. I need your observations. And we've had some good ones so far, but I want to keep on hearing from you. That dialogue, that back and forth... That can't be just here on the microphone. That has to be here as a community. I like to think of us all who are listening in right now and will those who will join us in the future as part of a group, a group that's discussing this and trying to give serious thought to what it is we do. Maybe it's just thought about identifying what we've done before, and for some of us it's going to be thought about what we're going to do in the future in our own businesses. So I had to tell them. I don't have the answer. I don't have them. But what I do know, like I just mentioned before, is it's about change. It's about adapting to the environment around us. And I'll explain what I mean just after these brief messages. Did you know, after 69 years, the Arnett Gallery has moved from its location on 57th Street to a brand new location in Chelsea at the Crozier Fine Art Building at 600 West 20th Street? You didn't? Did you know that the famed sports artist Stephen Holland created a painting of Ortiz that the Los Angeles Angels brought onto the field and gifted to Ortiz for his last visit in his last season as a ball player? Did you know about that either? Well, if you didn't, if somehow you missed it, it probably means you don't get Art World News. Art World News has been bringing people like you and me up to date about what's going on in the art selling industry for 20 years now, and they keep on marching forward. They do a great job of keeping us up to date on what the trends and movements are within the field, and they do a fantastic job even giving us a little bit of insight on what's coming next down the pike. If you don't already get a copy of it regularly in your own gallery or offices, I highly suggest you give them a call and you go on their website and you remedy that right away. Recently, The Road Show. And if you're not familiar with them, you're familiar with the artists that they bring around the world over and over and over again, folks like Peter Max. Well, recently, they signed on another incredible artist, 
Romeo Brito. I know you know that name too. And what was the very next phone call that they made after that particular coup? Well, they contacted Relevant Communications. That's who they contacted. You can find them yourself over at relevantcommunications.net. They had to contact them because, well, what's the next thing you do? You got to put the word out. You got to let everybody know the great thing that you have. And Allison Zucker Perlman, the owner of Relevant Communications, along with her crack team of PR specialists who's focused specifically in our industry, the art industry, they're going to do a great job as they always do. If you want to take a card out of my own personal Rolodex and you got a little bit of something you want to shout about in the art world, well, give them a call. Our Relevant Communications found at relevantcommunications.net. Back when I got started, and I'm not going to say how long ago that was. Once again, we've, we've done enough of that. I'm just going to say it was far enough back where things are different today than they were then. So back in that time, if you ran into somebody who had chops, who knew what they were doing in the gallery world, a good gallery director or art dealer or gallery owner, whatever it is, odds are they had a credential behind them. And, and let me stop myself for just one second. When I'm talking about my experience, I'm talking about what's called a street-level gallery. And one day I'll get into what that is. Anyway, back to my story. They would have a credential for one of a handful of companies who built themselves around the idea that they were going to sell not to the upper echelon, they were going to sell to normal folk. And I don't mean the guys with a job at the factory, but you know, people who are upperly mobile, uh, had some reasonable income, but were normal folk, middle class, and aiming to be probably much more than that at some time. People who were starting to go for first generation for college educations, and they aim for even better for their own children. Those operations went by the names of Circle Gallery, Martin Lawrence, but the very first, the one that came before all of these galleries, Merrill Chase. Merrill Chase was started by Robert Chase and his father, Merrill Chase. And they are the grandfather and father of my guest today, Bob Chase. I want you to have a good understanding of where he comes from. Bob comes from an outright dynasty. Not only were they the first, but they were the first to figure out a lot of things that we see in our business today. They were the first to really invent an entirely new part of our industry that pretty much didn't exist previously. There were galleries, and there were galleries that sold to normal folks, but not in the way that Merrill Chase approached it. They saw a part of America that was just showing up. They saw soldiers who had come back from the World War II, got an education on the GI Bill, bought a little house, maybe uh, got one of the very first uh, serious jobs in their own families. And uh, they were upwardly mobile people. They were buying cars. They were buying high fives. Uh, they were buying televisions. And they were aiming to send their children to college. And it was both them and their children that were a brand new kind of American that we had yet to see before. Even though they were not of the elite, they that saw themselves as heading in that direction, and they wanted the amenities that the people of the upper echelon had. They wanted not only their education, but they wanted the fixtures that came along with it. And one of those would be art, real art, not just decorative knickknacks, not just folky stuff. They wanted something that represented themselves. They wanted a real gallery experience. And it was Merrill Chase that eventually became the first answer to those folks. But the next part, this I find even a little bit more interesting. They didn't set out to be that, not at first. It came from an entirely different kind of business. And I'm stealing a little bit of the thunder from the interview that's about to come in, but I want to set the stage here. I turned on my mic perhaps just a few minutes too late. We had started talking about what Bob's grandfather was doing before he had the business that would later become the Merrill Chase Gallery business. And that was a photo studio. And before that, he was doing 
good old-fashioned door-to-door sales. So with that, I'm going to hand us over to our interview in progress. My dad definitely sort of cut his teeth and, and got his chops selling from going door to door. I mean, it's really what he did. So he was, it was high school. He did it. I think he even did it in college. They would go up and down the street. You know, they'd be out there for hours, you know, and the, and the crew guy who was driving the van, he'd send them back out if they didn't have any sales. Just, you know, keep, keep sending them back out. So it was, you know, real perseverance. And you get tough. You get tough. I mean, I don't know what the equivalent of that is in today's world. Um, cause it's certainly not the, on the internet. <laughs> No, but every, it's not as much as you used to see it, but it's a common story. I've heard so many times from people, the old timers in our business who started selling pots and pans door to door and all those things. Sure. And I get it. I mean, there's times when, you know, I wish I had some of that, um, in my background, you know, I, I definitely had other ways in which I cut my teeth, but, but it's pretty relatable experience. I mean, you talk about objections, you talk about rejections, you talk about overcoming things. I mean, it's a lot of that. You know, you, you got to build a relationship enough that somebody's going to open their door and let you walk into their home, and mm-hmm. which in today's world would never happen, obviously. But, but back then, that's what they did. So, you know, then they just parlayed that into these concepts of, you know, relationship selling and and, and but but closing at the moment. You know, if, if you didn't close while you were standing there, it just wasn't going to happen. So, what years were these? So, my dad was in high school. This would have been, you know, in the fifties. Yeah. And then he went away, um, he went away to college and on his way out of college, my grandfather, who was running a photography business at the time, um, was struggling and, and needed help. And so my dad came in to help him. Eventually the photography business, um, sort of transitioned into an art business. And, and it was really a result of my dad having met some artists that he liked and putting some of their paintings in the window and starting to realize that, oh yeah, there's something here. Uh, you know, we could, we could sell these paintings. It was right when, um, so this is just a photo studio. It was a, it was a portrait photography studio. And, and uh, your father decides, Hey, it, business needs a little bit of help. He needs a little something extra. So let's see if we can put a couple of paintings in the window well, and see what happens. No, I'll, I'll, the, the painting, the, the, the picture is not quite as bright as that. Uh-huh. <laughs> The picture is, so my version was the kind of that, back, back your, of the placemat version. Your version is great. Yeah. <laughs> The real version is that the business was failing, and the only thing that was working was creating paintings based on photographs of people, of a loved one that had died. That was the part of the business that was working. So, so this you can is 1893. Yeah, you can imagine, right, we're like tin types. Like, yeah, you know? right. So, but you can imagine being a young guy, uh-huh. uh, my dad being a young guy, and like, you know, having to go around and deal with this. It's like, you're talking to somebody's family that, that just lost somebody that they love and you're trying to sell them something. Granted that, you know, has, will have lasting meaning to them, but not a fun and uh, engaging and intellectual sale by any stretch. It's a, uh, it's, it's a little grim. So anyway, um, I think he just, he just wanted something brighter in, in his life than that. So he had met these artists and uh, and started putting some of their work in the window and having some success. And then this was at the rise of the suburban shopping mall, right? Uh, in Chicago in particular, uh, there was a number of these suburban malls that were being developed. And they took a flyer uh, on this concept of going out into um, a shopping mall and trying to create a space where um, art could be accessible to sort of the general public, right? So there was this broadening... Uh, an enriched middle class that was happening. They had homes now, they had wall space, they had uh, opportunity that they didn't have before, so now they needed to decorate. So they, they went out to Oak Brook Mall in Chicago and half of the space that they built was uh, a photography studio and the other half was an art gallery. And the first studio photographer that they had on staff was Ken Beam. I don't know if you remember Ken. Oh, sure I do. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) So it turns out that Ken was not only a great photographer, and by the way, my whole childhood uh, up until about the age of five is documented by Ken Beam. (laughs) This is absolutely the first time hearing that Ken Beam was a photographer before this. (laughs) Oh, he's still a photographer. Okay. Oh, yeah. I guess once a photographer, always Always a photographer. photographer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, He invented Once More Once. 
It sounds, you know, like when you look at the camera, you go, okay, once more, oh. once. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ken, if you're listening, that's for you. Uh, in any event, so they had this, it was called I think, Merrill Chase Art Center or something at the, at the time. Uh, Merrill Chase was my, was my father. I mean, my grandfather. Um, uh, in any event, they had these two spaces and, and the art just started winning out, hands down. And it was very decorative at the time. So it was, it was really about people enriching their lives by putting beautiful things on their walls in, in these homes that they had just sort of expanded into. And nobody had been exposed to art because art was a very closed system at the time. But generationally, what you're doing is you're catching that generation that's just coming off of World War II, basically. Absolutely. And I know it's a right. decade later. No, but, but they're all now in their homes. And right. They're like building these families. And they the got a little bit and... situated. They came back. They went to school. Yeah. They started, got a job, enough money. They bought a house. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it was kind of aligned with that. Mm-hmm. Um, Crate and Barrel was in the space, I think, next door. The first, uh, the first Crate and Barrel store uh, was next to the gallery as well. You know, and they were literally turning crates and barrels over. They would get things in shipping and they turn them over and put the whatever with the. Oh, I never heard about that either. Yeah. yeah. So they were like all starting at the same time uh, and trading stories and talking about you know how they could best address this growing market that they were all trying to tap into. So that was really the start of it for um, my father and my grandfather. I'll take a step back and give you a great story because I think one of the things that has been sort of consistent throughout the different iterations of my family's company and then later my company is we, we all like marketing. And my grandfather pulled off quite possibly the greatest marketing coup. Uh, and it was this. He, he was, his name was Isidore Chudikov. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he's a Russian Jew. So Irish, apparently. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's really an Irish guy. <laughs> it, it might have been Mick Chudikov. <laughs> so he's a, um, he's a Russian. It's just, when that came out of your mouth, it's like, what bad writer in Hollywood came up with that stereotypical name? Exactly, right? right? <laughs> so he comes... Um, he comes out of college uh-huh. and he starts getting into photography business. He wants to start a studio and he looks around and he figures, okay, I am dead in the water with this name. Uh, and I'm a Russian Jew. Like I'm, you know, in a moment in time when, you know, really opening a business with that kind of background and, and feeling like you're going to be a success necessarily. At least he doesn't think that. So he looks around and tries to figure out what he's, what his name is going to be. And there's, you know, Chase Manhattan Bank and there's Merrill Lynch. And he goes, okay, Merrill Chase. No kidding. So there's my name. Wow. Because somebody is going to buy something from a guy named Merrill Chase. Well, okay. So fast forward yeah. 50 plus years. We have, our, uh, we have our third child and we decide to name him Ethan Merrill Chase. I thought my wife was completely up to speed on the name Merrill Chase. Uh, I later found out that she wasn't and found out that her son, we had named our son after two banks. In any event, and, uh, and he, he played the part. I mean, he just, he completely, he almost entirely shunned Judaism and did his very best to be this uh, sort of buttoned up uh, kind of, Christian sort of guy. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he really played it. He's, he's, was it to the point that maybe your father didn't know that, um, that, no, was, that they, lineage they was knew, there? No, but it was, it was conflicted because um, my grandmother was still very much, you know, from a Jewish background. It was part of her uh, upbringing. It was uh-huh. important to her. Um, my father's sister, she was really, really distraught by the whole thing because she very much felt connected to the Jewish faith. You know? Well, that must have been really tough. Yeah. So there was, there was always like this weird sort of thing happening, but we'd still go have like a Seder dinner, which it just didn't make, well, there's a lot of that stuff that didn't make a whole lot of sense. So it's kind of an unspoken weirdness. That yeah, was, a little bit. Yeah. A, a little bit. But, you know, back to sort of the business of it, mm-hmm. on the commercial side, it worked. He, he invented this crest and the whole thing. I mean, it was a whole thing. <laughs> so. And also not the only person in the art business to do that. Exactly. Exactly. I so mean, I'm not going to call anybody out, but I know a few other stories. Exact, you know, not exactly like that, yeah. but people covering up their own lineage. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, but, but doesn't that kind of fit an aspect of the business too? I mean, yes, you're, you're playing a role that perhaps is necessary just in certain communities that you want to sell. 
you're also maybe covering the role that someone expects an art dealer to be. But it goes along with the fact that you're not just selling cars. I mean, our business is very akin to show business in some respects. So in a way, it's very similar to the actors that would come out and take away whatever ethnic background was. Sure. Yeah. People want to buy things that are a part of our world, of the art world, um, that are expensive, et cetera. They they want sort of the whole package. So they want people, they want to trust the person, but they want to believe that there's some you know, this this person fits the part of, of the person I should be buying this piece from, right? Right. Yeah, so I think you're right. I think there is some of that. I'm also wondering if it goes to that earlier thing we were talking about, which is this is a point where it's an extension of Americans buying their way into some version of culture. Mm-hmm. That is, by nature, we're all new. We don't have a lot of heritage collectively, but we're trying to buy that heritage in one way or the other. And that's not easy to do if you're buying into, if the person selling it to you represents a culture that doesn't represent that, mm-hmm. that doesn't represent a culture that has an aristocracy attached to yeah, it. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think there is some of that. I mean, I don't want to feed you a cause. Yeah. No, yeah, no, 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 I, I think it works. Of, I think yeah. it's, in my grandfather's case, it worked. Um, so, uh, so they started this business, decorative paintings and things. And um, as the business expanded, the material that they were representing started to expand with it. One of the one of the people that um, my father did things early on with was Peter Max. Back in the hippie days, I've got great some great photos of my dad and Peter, um, you know, with beads all around their neck and hair down to their shoulders, and you know the peace signs and all that stuff. So they had they had fun with that. So it's code switching once again. <laughs> yeah. Well, this was my dad. Oh, your dad. Yeah, right. my dad. Yeah, okay. No, no, my grandfather. Never had long hair, and never but, probably flashed a peace sign of any kind. Yeah. Right, well, it's a uh, continuation of the tradition then. Yeah, right. It's, it's adapt to the next culture. It's adapt to the next The culture. next generation yeah. that comes along. Yeah. yeah. So that started working, you know, representing these American painters that were sort of having, having some commercial notoriety, et cetera. They were also dealing a lot with, um, they were getting European paintings and things. So they were selling a lot of that, but they were starting to do both. And then um, early on, too, he he did a, a show with John Lennon. So he kind of saw, I think I think my dad had um, a, a good perception of, I, I'm talking about him in the third person, by the way, he's very much alive. <laughs> so I want to make sure that, that we get that out there. But alive and involved uh, alive and involved yeah uh-huh. i mean I, I i certainly talk to him a lot about my business because it's a great it, it's a it's a great thing for me i know it's a thrill for him too anyway he he had a, a good sense of of attaching to things that had um a, a lot of additional exposure around them you know you know peter max was somebody who was having a lot of commercial exposure so there was this kind of idea of something bigger than itself right mm-hmm. um certainly john lennon was is as big as you could get in in terms of a pop cultural icon at the time. Yeah, it doesn't represent just the art; it represents everything. Everything. Attached yeah. To it. Right. Yeah. So, um, so we did a, a Lennon show, and um, and the gallery got shut down for pornography. So this is the famous Chicago Lennon show. Yeah. You know, there's so there was some good stories along the way. So he had this he had this idea, you know, this way of identifying things that had you know some bigger quality to it, and. That sort of dovetailed into his desire. He was getting more into fine prints and getting more excited about artists that had a lot of critical acclaim and were you know just intellectually more stimulating as he was as he was going. The gallery was transitioning. It was always still for the people. He always was in locations that were very much for the people. You could always walk in. There would always be a smile greeting you at the door. Uh, it was never. It wasn't a white cube where you didn't know what to do and walk in and. Do you talk to somebody? Do you not? I mean, it was an inviting place. That was a big part of it. And story-wise, you're pulling into the 70s now. And yeah. By this time, Merrill Chase is very well spread, isn't it? Yeah. They're, they're, I mean, you how know, many locations? On, on their way to it. At one point, there were you know 10 locations or something like right. that. So uh, nine locations, maybe. So, so my dad, as part of looking at other artists and other opportunities and still kind of marrying that intellectual curiosity with things that were bigger than themselves, ended up approaching Salvador Dali to do a commission. He went to Dali with, with what was really a good idea. 
And, and that was this. He knew that Dolly was a huge Leonardo da Vinci fan and believed that he was a modern-day Leonardo da Vinci. Dolly sort of believed that about himself. Dolly believed a lot of things about himself, if you read him. <laughs> Dolly also invented his own language. Exactly. So, yeah. so my dad said, great, okay, I'm going to go commission Dolly to create a series of works based on his projections of the future. Leonardo da Vinci did it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago and basically drew helicopters. Yeah. Right? Uh, so what does Dolly think? And, and that's how you had to talk to Dolly, like in the third person, right? So if he was talking to him, to his face, what does Dolly think of, of the future? What is your Leonardo da Vinci vision today? This is also a classic move in artist representation. Yeah. We just find out what the artist has always wanted to do and yeah. then be the conduit to make it possible for them to do that big vision thing. Sure. Yeah. And, yeah. and if it celebrates them, all the better. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, and, and it worked. Uh, as, as my dad tells the story, and if you do interview him, you'll you'll hear a great Dolly impression. But, you know, Dolly throws up his arms and his cane stands up. I mean, fantastic! You know? <laughs> so, but... Uh, he could he could talking do it. about himself in third person exactly and, exactly yeah. <laughs> and, and then it, and the story goes on to to a series of negotiations that involve my dad having to climb into a swimming pool at Dolly's estate while the lawyer while Gala was was kind of like feeling him up a little bit uh, Dolly's wife uh-huh. and, and Dolly was on a throne at the end of the pool and his lawyer was in the pool Dolly's lawyer was in the pool and every time they agreed on a point in the negotiation of the contract the, the, the lawyer would slap the water twice. As a, as a, you know, once was, we don't agree, twice was we agree. I mean, wow. You know? So these were very You color- just want to film, somebody to get the footage yeah. of that so badly. I know. So um, the, there's a, there was a bunch of twists and turns in the story along the way, you know, to, uh, to finally getting the work completed, you know, one of which was there is no work. And, so and, was this and then the you beginning? can't have the work. <laughs> like it was, you know, a hundred things, but eventually it got, it got done. So, uh, you know, my, my dad became Mr. Chicago. <laughs> for Dolly. And, uh, and it worked. It, I mean, it really worked. It was the, the, the suite of material that they created was called imaginations and objects of the future. One of the things that Dolly envisioned was a road that had numbers on it. And as you drove down the road, these numbers would like feed into your car and drive your car itself and tell you where to go and tell you things about the road and all this stuff. I mean, it, that happened. Uh-huh. Yeah. Got that that yeah. happens. I mean, it happens. You didn't envision the technology, but yeah. the concept. Yeah. Yeah. So we really, you know, there's some other ones that were, it was pretty interesting. You know, as a result of all of this for me as a kid, I didn't fully, as a kid does, you know, your dad has a job and that's what he does. And, but, but what I, what I got out of it was number one, when, when, um, they would do exhibitions, artists would come and many times stay at our house. So I would have sort of breakfast table conversations with artists. And I always found that really interesting because I, there was always some perspective and, and I don't even think I totally realized this at the time, but there was always some perspective that they would shed on even what was happening in that day or who knows what that was always just a little bit different and i liked that that they saw things a little bit differently than just accepting that you know there's a tree out there and that's a tree like you know they saw it in a different way and they could articulate it really well and uh, i liked that I, I think that rubbed off on me you know quite a bit and then this thing with dolly i was really young at the time but it became such a legendary story. I'm not sure if I can separate the reality from the stories because I was growing up through it. So it's almost like, you know, when somebody shows you photographs and you, and, and then later in life, you don't know if you experienced it or you just had the photographs of it and think you experienced it. Right. <laughs> so, not to mention it's through the prism of a child. So it's being filtered as well. Exactly. Yeah. So it, it loomed large in my mind and I loved the work. I love the idea of surrealism, and that stuck with me uh, for forever. That stuck with me. It actually led to the Dr. Seuss project, quite frankly. There's a few things that I think I really took away from it. I, I liked Dolly as that formidable thing. I liked meeting and, and speaking with these artists, and I liked the notion of accessibility for people, of access to things that they didn't have access to. 
And I thought that felt very kind of democratic and right and fair. People should be able to go and see that work. People shouldn't have to have a certain level of income or or know which door to walk into in order to experience art. They should be able to just experience it if they want to. Is that you or is that something you got from your father? No, I think it rubbed off on me from my father Mm -hmm. because that was the premise of the gallery was to make it an accessible environment. And, And, you know, that translates all the way through everything I've, I've done all the way through, you know, my work on the high, you know, high end contemporary with, with guys like Eric Fischel. It, 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 I sit on a board at uh, the Aspen Art Museum, which is arguably one of the edgiest contemporary museums in the country. I mean, there's really, really contemporary programming. One of the things that I, I started with them was a um, program called I Don't Get It, because I really felt like we were we were just leaving a big audience behind because we were perceived as this really, you know, you can't even walk in there. What is this stuff? You know, why, why, why does it exist? And why is it expensive? And damn it, you know, like people would get, people would get viscerally upset. Oh, I've seen it. They just, sure. I mean, they were just maddening because they're, they, they, and by the way, this museum didn't cost anybody anything who walks in it. It's all, privately funded it's not like it's out of taxpayers money right now. and it's a great facility but the but the community around it didn't understand it and they just felt like somebody was taking the piss out of them and they just you know it was really frustrating to them so we started this i don't get it and the idea was like okay no question's a bad question and no word can have more than five syllables and and that's you know we're going to talk about art in the most accessible way and we're going to invite you know my mountain biking friends and we're going to invite you know people in to access this and i think it was interesting because sorry if this is a tangent but no i'm interested in this what i found is when i when i started to break it down for people i i realized that all of the all the noise and charge that gets added into these objects that these people make these these artworks the charge of money and status and gatekeepers and tastemakers and museums it all loads on top of these objects right to the point where people are just they they're they they do not get it they like i don't get it that's a painting with three lines on it i, I don't get it why is it a million dollars why is it in the museum why is it that 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 it's like okay you know what it's a private club it's a yeah. private language that that club is speaking right. yeah so and it reminds people that they're not part of it yeah I get upset by that because I don't want that, right? I, I want people to feel inclusive. And that, that's part of going back to, you know, what was going on at the galleries. What I encourage people to do in these situations and when we do these, these I don't get it seminars is you have to take all of that out of your mind. It costs zero, right? And it's in a place that you can walk in. Forget that it's a museum. Who cares? You didn't pay for it. It's just a, it's just a room with a piece of art hanging on it. And that piece of art costs five bucks because that's what the canvas costs. And it costs a hundred bucks for the stretchers and a lot of this person's time and intellectual energy, right? Right. Now, what do you think about it? I still hate it. Okay, well, let's talk about why you hate it. Because it's only two lines and my kid could have done that. Well, okay, but let's talk about, you know, and then like you just get into a conversation. If you take the, all that other stuff out, then you can actually just have a, you can, you can access it. Are you addressing this, though, as a gallery owner who ultimately is involved in eventually in selling it? Or are no, you talking about it from no, the perspective? I have no dog in the hunt. Okay. So you're no talking about it strictly in the museum context in which this is coming from. There's totally in the museum context, zero dog in the hunt, other than I want people to understand it. I actually have expanded this. I don't get it. Concept is we're, we're doing it. We're going to roll it out into some other museums because I think it's important. So um, is the title a conceit? Is it a surrender? Is it uh, a joke up front? It's a joke so that up we front. can have a little laugh a, and then move on. Yeah, it's a joke up front. It's like I don't get it. You know what? I don't either. Let's talk about it. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, it's okay. So it's so when you walk in, you're not put in that position of well, the people who are putting this on and a lot of other people, they all understand it. So no. it's, it's you. No, well, I'm saying, but that's kind yeah. of the experience no. that you can have in another show, and you're just taking that away. You're taking all that away, right? Yeah. Fortunately, I've gotten to do a lot of really. Uh, things for me that are interesting in the contemporary world. And I have some of these preconceived notions and I'm sure it's built up from years and years of 
going to auctions and you know, reading these magazines and museums. And all this. So I, I get like sort of, I get a little bit built up in my own mind. I'm going to meet an artist and I, and I think that they're going to be, I think I'm not going to like them because they're a part of this. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. And then I start having these conversations with them. I'm like, oh my God, this guy's wonderful. This guy's amazing. Like, I love the way he's thinking about the world. And I love the way he articulates why he's painting it this way and what he's doing. And, and, and he's just a good guy. Like, we're having a beer and it's great, you know? And there's that dumb cliche about you know, everybody wakes up and puts their pants on the same way in the morning. Um, not Except true. some of us then sell million dollar paintings. Exactly. So, right. Then we have people that do that for us. <laughs> <laughs> I like the right leg on first, then the left leg. <laughs> so, but again, if you, if you peel away the layers and, and you kind of get down into it, it, it can all be accessible. And I really like that idea that it can all be accessible, but, but it's kind of an uphill battle to, to push against a system that's in place to make it accessible a little bit. Isn't there kind of an inherent conflict in that that we deal with as people who sell art? Meaning you're trying to do two things simultaneously, right? You want to invite somebody in so they're comfortable to have a conversation. You know, I often talk a lot about how one of the biggest challenges we have is people feel very unarmed when they come into an art gallery. They feel they don't have the vocabulary, they don't understand the dynamics of it, and even though they can afford it and they love what's on the wall, they're not comfortable making a purchase because it's hard to make a purchase in a world where you feel you're at the greatest disadvantage of the everything right. else going on, the space, everybody else involved in it, the artist, the whole bit. But in the same time that you're trying to make things accessible and comfortable and familiar, you're also trying to deliver the notion that it's special and right. that it's unique and it's rarefied, hence the value of it. Yeah. This isn't pedestrian. This isn't just available to anybody, You know, hence why some people spend a lot of money to have this experience. Right. Um, There's a duality, isn't there? There is. I mean, I think that's kind of the, you know, as, as my friend Marcus Pearson, who's, a, a, you know, Marcus sure. Hart probably, um, you know, he always says, you know, it's a really difficult dive. That's a, that's a you know, that's a 10.5. Uh -huh. That's a hard one. <laughs> so, and it is. It's a, it is, but, but there's a way to do it. And, and, well, you were in the gallery today. So, you know, it's just, it's being friendly, it's disarming, it's being, um, it's engaging and starting to build that relationship. And while you're doing that, you're, you know, just slowly um, sprinkling in the value equation, which is not, it's strategic, I guess, in the way in which you're doing it, but it has to come from a place of, you know, reality. So you can only do that well if you really believe in the value equation to begin with. And then it comes out natural and accessible and, um, special still. I think that there is a way to do both, but I absolutely agree. It's Oh, yeah. And it's more than just skill. It takes very specialized personalities to handle it. Yeah. It's not so. something that just anybody can do. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in the sense that anybody can learn how to read music or bow it, you know, hold a bow and sure. string an instrument. Doesn't make you a musician. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I, and you see it every day. You see people that are really good uh, in the galleries and then others that they just don't rise to it. You know, they're, they're good on one aspect, but not necessarily the other, or, mm -hmm. uh, which is, you know, a whole nother challenge in this world. And often you get a little too much of one and not the other. I mean, I've, right. I've had that experience. I'm sure you have too. You hire someone who's just fantastic about warming over people. They can make anybody their best friend at the drop of a hat, you know, and, and not aggressively, but I mean, right. like, it feels as organic as can be. And I'm not saying that cynically either. It's real. They're just right. that kind of person. Yet, they're never going to get to that other part of the conversation. Right. They're, they're never going to make something in front of them as special as the experience that the person's having in that moment. I, I agree. And then, give, and then getting to that point where they're, uh, as, as we would say, you know, giving them the permission to... Uh, to acquire a memory of that, right? To have right. the piece, <laughs> like bring this home and, and remember that amazing experience and, and have it be a part of your life, right? Yeah. Yeah, they don't get to that. Some yeah. people get to that in the first 30 seconds. That never goes well either. <laughs> so. yeah. And some people, in the back of their mind, it's a betrayal. Yeah, yeah. So there's, you know, there's, I, I don't know if I picked up on a lot of that when I was a kid. Probably not. You know, I did spend some time in the galleries and stuff, but, but not. Uh... But you had a unique advantage, didn't you? 
what I mean by that is not just industry-wise, but being in the right mentality to sell art. That is, for a lot of people who go into this business, myself included, you know, my family wasn't traveling the world collecting art and galleries everywhere we went. That was something that I had to adapt to. Sure. That that's a normal thing that people do, you know. Before I actually did it for a living, that was a very distant concept yeah. from anything that I was exposed to. To you, that's as natural as anything else. Well, I think it was, yeah, you, we were talking today about influences and, you know, artistic influences are just influences in our lives, right? You know, you, you build up this base of experiences. And I started with a really great base of experience because I already knew that I, I had an affinity for it. I liked it. I liked what it meant in my life. I, you know, there was a lot of good stuff that, um, that I could start with, which was great. And to know that there, that, that you could actually build a business in art was something that I knew from the very beginning. A lot of people didn't, you know, maybe even you, you know, came to, oh, I mean, you can actually be in the art business and there's a, there's a function and this is what it is and this is how I can do it. And, you know, mm -hmm. So um, I, I had that early on. Not that I wanted to necessarily go into it, quite frankly. I, I went and did other things for, I don't know, maybe five or ten years. But What did you first want to do? Um, I, I was really into um, marketing, filmmaking, and art. And, and I had a really great professor that... Um, so there was no way I was going to graduate. Maybe that was for other reasons, but. <laughs> <laughs> so what you're saying is there, there's a and something else that you're not listening. No, 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 there's not, there's really, it's really not. I was actually a pretty, I, I liked school. It wasn't as bad as that, but, uh, but I was kind of, I was sort of on my own path a little bit. And, and fortunately there was a professor that helped me create a degree around the things that I was interested in and helped me put it together, even though it wasn't necessarily something that existed. That was great. And I, I knew from really early on that I really loved marketing. I really loved film and I really loved art. Like those, they just were there and they never, I never thought about doing anything other than that. Um, and I didn't know what that was, but, uh, but something to do with those three things. So anyway, then I ended up on a path of, of filmmaking and, and started out as a, production assistant, you know, driving trucks and all that stuff and getting into filmmaking, finally being a producer and, and, um, working yeah. in LA. No, it was in Chicago. Mm -hmm. It was in Chicago. So, um, I spent a lot of time in LA, which was fun. Um, and, and, and a little disheartening too. I was, the, the path I took was started as a PA, eventually, um, started a location scouting business in Chicago because there was a lot of film that was going on in Chicago. The Illinois film office was getting really aggressive. Um, so I started a, a location scouting business for these LA directors that were coming in and needed places to shoot. And I loved it. And I knew the city really well. So, and it was a way for me to interact directly with the director, which I thought was really cool. Oh, that's great. You must've met a lot of really interesting people. Although I met a lot and but most of the stuff that was happening in Chicago was music videos, which were cool uh -huh. music videos and commercials. But at the time, what was really cool is it was like, um, these guys who have now gone on to like have these amazing careers like Gore Verbinski and, and Michael Bay and he, you know these they were just guys making videos and, and stuff back in the day. Just I mean, they were, fresh out of film school. Right? Yeah, they were a little yeah. bit more than that. I mean, they were part of uh, I think those guys were part of Propaganda at the time, which was a really cool film company, and they were doing they were definitely doing cool stuff, but they were still super young. But they would come to Chicago and do these commercials, so I could interact with them. That was very cool. I liked that, and then I ended up getting a job um that was all freelance stuff which was great but, but then i wanted to get a little bit of a bigger vision so uh i i landed as a producer at a at an ad agency in chicago so i could sort of oversee the whole thing so i was in charge of the entire budget i was in charge of hiring the film company and the director and the and the um uh, the, the editing company and and creating you know hiring somebody commissioning a piece of music etc and and then i would go to la for that stuff and, and for no reason other than we had a lot of money in our budget and, was, <laughs> you know, and, and we were all like, yeah, we should go to LA and do that. Yeah. We should get Jonathan Elias to make the music. Yeah. He's cool. You know, it just, it was, it got disheartening. It was, it was a, it was a big waste of money. I love the front end of an ad budget. Yeah. You know, I, I started off in advertising myself, okay. but I was a food photographer. Okay. 
And at a point in my career, I was actually teaching classes for people who wanted to get into food styling at uh, California Institute. You know? Yeah. And um, the California Culinary Academy, excuse me. And I used to have to explain to them, I said, the tough part about where we are in the advertising business is you would think this is where the money goes. All of that got spent a long time ago. <laughs> the creative directors, they flew back and forth between LA we and New burned York. burned your budget before you ever right, got it. Right, right. They had big dinners and they did a bunch of research and they went all around for that. And then someone decided they need to see if Hawaii would work. And then eventually we showed up and it's like, yeah, we got about 10 grand left in this baby. <laughs> so bad. I mean, I, it really is. And, and, and truthfully, it, uh, it's what made me leave it because... It just felt wrong. You, mm -hmm. you know, we were on the creative side, we were all out to, to make our, you know, real, our, our better and better and, and work with cooler directors and cooler music producers and that, 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 so that we could get the next thing and the next thing. And, you know, it was a very sort of self serving thing. And the client kind of got lost in the shuffle, I think, a little bit. And, uh, you know, we would rent out, <laughs> we had this one, we rented out an entire house in Hollywood. On the in, up in the Hollywood Hills, and it, I, it was like three or four levels, basketball court, all, swimming pool, all this stuff. We're like, okay, yeah, we're gonna go there. We live there for like five days, and we're gonna get you know X Y Z. I can't remember who the music guy was at the time that we had. We commissioned somebody to make music, so he came in to score this music, and he set up a studio in all these different rooms around the house. You know, one room was the drum room, one was, uh, and we sat there for five days, and and you know made an album uh -huh. <laughs> essentially, <laughs> for, for this dumb commercial and you know we were outside shooting so you were set up like it's exile on main street yeah, being recorded exactly. in like, paris we, yeah we yeah, were like but, we, but but you know what it's for like you're you know, selling big, dog chow exactly or yeah exactly <laughs> and and then i just thought okay this is like this can't be and i was looking around at the time guys who were a lot older than me you know who were basically my age now and, and like if i'm doing this when i'm that age like that i i, I will I will feel like I have sold my soul. Like I need to either get into film and, and, but anyway. So well, that is one nice on. thing about our business, isn't it? Yeah. It's a hell of a lot more simplified. Yeah. Which has its good points and bad points sure. too. You know, there's nowhere to escape to either. It's yeah. like if, if you don't like dealing with that guy who's in that market, right. tough. That's tough. the guy. That's who's there. Yeah. But other, but on the other hand, there's one person that sells it. There's, you know, yeah. there's an artist, there's, there's the printer. It's not that dynamic in comparison. No, but I did take a lot. Of, I think back on the stuff that I took away from what seemed to be a really disparate um, experience to what I do now, and and the parallels and the things that I that I use every day are really really um, intrinsic to what I do. I mean, they ju it just is. So I was. Do you have an example of a lesson that you learned in advertising that you carry today in the gallery business um, or yeah, and I, publishing? Yeah, or? I'd say a couple of them. I mean, for sure, for one for me personally is the advertising business and specifically the guys I was working with who were tirelessly um, sort of hell-bent on clean design, less is more. Um, you know, they just beat into my head this visual aesthetic that became something really important to me that I follow now in a lot of what I do. So um, that was that was one thing for sure that that drives a lot of my life today, professionally. Th more pragmatically, though, like um, th this idea of in advertising, you've got the client on one side. Actually, in, in my case, because I was in the creative side of it, I had the client and the account exec on one side, right, and I had the artists and directors and you know art directors mm -hmm. and all those people on the other side, and I had to bridge the gap. Right, and so something it, we're very familiar it, with as publishers. We, as publishers, right? Know, we we do that every day, um, and and I, I think I didn't do it so well in that role, and I think I I got kicked around a lot, and I think I learned from that sort of what works and what doesn't work. Right? You know, there's there's times when you really have to sort of acquiesce to what what the needs of the clients are, and you really have to be focused on that. You can't lose sight of that, and you have to figure out a way to craft the creative side of it in a manner that will not be stifling to the artist in any way, but not unlike what we just talked about with Salvador Dali and my dad, you know, yeah. like find the project that fits that, you know, is going to translate all the way through things like getting, you know, getting paintings done on time for a, an exhibition that's already on the books and stuff. And then they're not on time because they never are. That's, you know, 
I had a lot of that in advertising too. And that you just got to learn how to put out fires. That's right. So, you know, but there's also a lot in our business. And I would imagine in, in the business of producing commercials too, the same of trying to save one side from themselves. Yeah. You know, you always have a side that thinks they know what's going to best serve them. And the mistake they're making is they don't understand what they're asking is going to deliver them a poor product. And that goes in both directions. As an artist, it's like, well, if you push the people selling your stuff too much this way, the response is going to be they're going to do a really bad job representing you at some point and vice versa. If you push on the artist, the artist is going to give you something you can't sell at all. Absolutely. I think it's, it's, that's really true. And, you know, you got to kind of find that balance. I think the other component of it when i when i think about the parallels back and forth are the artists are um, it's a very solitary job right i mean as an artist for most people they work in solitude and um and you're you're pretty much their one connection with the outside world yeah on two fronts uh, on the selling front through the galleries and on the production front if you're dealing with any kind of fabrication or something that can't be created in the studio, whether it's printmaking, whether it's sculpture fabrication, you know, you name it, mixed media. So I I was definitely honed a skill at you have to pull these teams together and sort of make it work in, in kind of a common, as a common vision. And you have to do that for artists as well, for sure. Like you have to figure out, okay, I've got to take this guy from the studio and I've got to let him really feel comfortable with the fact that these 10 people at this sculpture fabrication studio in Italy or in New York, wherever the hell it is, is now his paintbrush is an extension of him. And and he's going to have to trust these guys, but also orchestrate how the work is going to get made and feel comfortable in that environment. Right. And same thing with the sales staff. Like, like you just said, you know, these guys have to know what the message is and he has to be able to, or she has to be able to trust that sales team to, to convey what is the right message and be an extension of himself or herself on the floor of this gallery every day. And, and there's a lot that goes into making that happen. It's not brain surgery, but there's a lot that goes into making that happen well. And, and that, that was a crossover for me from, from my production experience, for sure. I know I did it again. I stopped right while he was talking, right in the middle of a conversation. And if you know the Art Dealer Show, then you know what that means. It means this conversation was too damn good to cut down to fit into just one episode. And it's going to be two. And I promise you, if you like this first part, you're going to like the second part just as much. It goes into a whole new territory and it's well worth coming back for. It's not the only thing that's well worth coming back for. If you remember back at the beginning of this episode, and I talked about, well, I I talked about the changes. I talked about the frustrations. I talked about the hope that we can all figure out what's coming next and how we have to change our own form, how we, we have to do, well, what Bob and his father and grandfather had done a number of times over, and Bob continues to do in his own business, and that is change form, change shape, with a changing world around them. I've got a little bit of, I'm not going to say answer in my uh, part two, but I've got a parable. I've got a little story I like to hang on to that keeps me warm at night and quite frankly excites me a little bit in the morning and moves me forward into figuring out what I'm going to do next. And I want to share it with you. So I hope you look forward to that and come back and listen to it. Now, as always, I want to ask you a favor. If you're enjoying this podcast, if you're enjoying it a fraction as much as I'm enjoying doing it, and I'm enjoying doing it a lot, I want to ask something of you. No, it's not money. Don't worry. Take your hands out of your pockets. Uh, But it is a little something something for the tip jar. It's a little love. It's a little acknowledgement. And it's a little bit of what will help move this podcast forward. And there's a few ways you can do this. One Tell someone about it. You got a friend in the business? You like what you're listening to? Tell them they should be listening to it too. Two, make a little noise about it out there on the social media. Three, and this is the big one, give us a review over on iTunes. 
If you don't know how to get there yourself, contact me. We're over at artdealer.show. You can drop me an email. I'll walk you through it. But please, if you got a couple minutes and you've been asking yourself, how can I help perpetuate this ongoing conversation and move towards the same things that I want to move towards? There's a way you can be doing it. It's one, two, and three, and three being the biggie. Give us a review over at iTunes. So, until next time, may the coconuts fall at your feet. May the elephants be big ones. And may I see you soon back here at the art dealer bar in my little corner booth, because I'll be waiting. Good night. This has been The Art Dealer Show. You can find us at artdealer.show, facebook.com slash artdealershow, tweeting at handleartdealershow, instagramming at artdealershow, and right here at the old art dealer lounge. Music.